This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Fourth Estate, the show where journalists discuss journalism. I'm Marcus Costello. Coming up, a reporter in Rio outs Olympians by baiting them on Grinder. The piece has been removed, but the damage has been done. Plus, Trump versus the media. Why does he pick fights and how can the media hold its own against him? And anti-Islam fanatics dressed up as Muslims and crashed a church service. How do social media stunts like this drive the news agenda? Joining me in the studio from Sydney Morning Herald is Nick O'Malley. Hello, Nick. Good evening. And from Star Observer, we have Shannon Power. Hello, Shannon. Hi, how are you? And freelance writer Alex McKinnon. Hey, Alex. Hi, Marcus. In response to a massive outcry, the politics and pop culture website The Daily Beast has sent home its London editor, Nico Hines, after publishing, then taking down his potentially life-threatening article about sex and the Olympics. The reporter used the hookup app Grinder to lure athletes to meet up with him. He's straight, so he wasn't interested in hooking up. He wanted to see if, quote, an average Joe could join the bacchanalia of the Olympic village. But here's the rub. The piece provided enough details to identify closeted athletes, even though some were from countries where being gay is illegal. Shannon, if those people who took offence on behalf of the outed athletes genuinely cared about the safety of those athletes... Shouldn't they have lodged a private complaint to the Daily Beast rather than calling it out publicly and in so doing drawing attention to the article? I think it's twofold and I think the um, the response in Slate sums it up pretty quickly. Enough people would have seen Nico's article in the Daily Beast to have identified the athletes already um, and it was clear by the re- global reaction to this piece that I think any sort of private correspondence with Daily Beast probably wouldn't uh, would have been ignored because it took a lot of uh, online heat for them to firstly take out those identifying factors and then many hours later and much, much uh, online heat later, they took down the piece entirely, gave a pretty pissy apology and then elaborated on that apology. So I wouldn't have trusted them anyway if people did reach out to them privately to take down that piece. No one has a clean track record when it comes to doing the right thing by the LGBT community. Mm. Were there instances of the kettle calling the pot black? Well, I think if we're going to take that question literally, then the answer is yes. But I think society and culture and media are always evolving. So if we look back even to the Sydney Morning Herald in the the 70s publishing the names of the 78ers who were arrested during Mardi Gras, they, in, by its track record, the Sydney Morning Herald's not perfect, but they've also come a long way in their LGBTI reporting. So I think even the Star Observer has had some mishaps along the way in terms of the way it's reported on particular issues. So nobody's perfect, but the fact that mainstream media can call out another service and highlight um, the the completely disgusting reporting that happened, I think is a sign that we are evolving and that um, everybody's catching up to being a little bit more politically correct. Alex, do you think that LGBT stories should be told by LGBT reporters? 
Ideally, yes. Um, I think there was a, a chance for a really good uh, story to come out of what I think Nico Hines was was trying to do. Um, there was, there'd be a great story in there somewhere about you know closeted athletes um, coming to the Olympics and being able to uh, I guess express themselves in ways that they couldn't um, in their home countries. Uh, I I can't necessarily say that all uh, reporting and investigative journalism on or about LGBT people should be done by LGBT people. That would be a little bit hypocritical of me. I was the uh, editor of the Star Observer, actually, for a a little while, a few years ago, um, and I am not LGBT, uh, so I would be shooting myself in the foot a little bit, I think. What are the limits, though, for journalists using tech like Grindr to find stories? Uh, I, I think, like... One of the, the lesser sins of that article, um, but a pretty fundamental one, was that it was just a bad and boring idea to begin with. The The story of athletes having sex at the Olympics uh, has been done so, so, so many times. Um, the huge ethical questions of it aside, um, I just don't see where like the interesting angle was in it, which sort of offends me. Uh, <laughs> Are they scraping the barrels for stories that they can't tell because they don't have the license to broadcast the Olympics, but they're in Rio. I mean, there's always a story to tell. Like, if if you can't find an interesting angle at a place like the Olympics, you're probably just not very good. Or lazy. Yeah, or the, lazy. The other problem with that story was in it, even even if you accepted it in its own terms, which I don't, was that it, it failed in its own terms. I think at the outset, the plan was to go and use on or social media to find any people gay or straight, LGBT or straight, to um, to see if he could join that, that bacchanada, as you say. And guess what? He couldn't. So he veered towards Grinder, where he had more success. There's still no justification for the story. And as you say, Alex, it's just a bad... It's a boring idea. It's, it's a dumb idea, apart from all the other dangerous components to it. Do you think that the Daily Beast has done enough to rectify the error? It could sack Nico. Um, I don't really have a strong view on that. I haven't really considered it. It's retracted the story, but the damage is done, and real damage has been done. People were put in danger. Uh, it's suffered terrible reputational damage. Um, to that extent, there is there's genuine punishment there, if you want to use that term. I don't know. I'd be interested to, to what you guys think. What else could they do? I think Nico could apologise. I think he could publicly uh, share his point of view on what's happened. Um, but as we were discussing off-air with Nick, this would have gone through so many hands, not only for it to have been published in the first place, but he would have had a chat with his editor about what he was working on that day. So there's been a lot of green lights in this process to get this story finally published. And I think there's a lot of different people in the in that process who need to be held accountable. The apology was great. I mean, the, the second or third draft of it that they finally published online. But the fact is it wasn't wouldn't have just been Nico with his salacious idea. A lot of other people would have known what he was doing and then a lot of other people would have approved what the final product was online. And it's not like he was a junior reporter given a no. bad idea by an editor and sent to do it. Absolutely. No, he was the London editor for the Daily Beast. Now, you say that they are likely to suffer a lot of reputational damage as a consequence of this story, but they did end up retracting the piece. So there was transparency along the way. They said they did the wrong thing categorically. Could some readers interpret this as them having learnt from their wrongs and now they're going to produce a better product for it. They were transparent. We should forgive them. Everybody should have a second chance. And they're probably going to be leaders when it comes to LGBT storytelling because they have 
learn from that wrong? I guess everyone can learn from their mistakes, but is um, a website as influential and popular as the Daily Beast should know better. It's 2016, um, and I just don't think that sort of tabloid fodder that was just lazy and uh, boring journalism shouldn't have been approved in the first place. So, And the fact that their first apology said something like, well, he tried talking to... female athletes as well and we don't believe that we compromised anybody's safety and et cetera, et cetera, just doesn't, just sort of says to me that I don't think they really got it to begin with and it wasn't until they caved into public pressure that they were willing to admit it. So I'm not quite sure if they do actually get the implications of what they've done. Talking about those ethical implications, do journalists have a responsibility to say that they are a journalist on assignment on first contact? Normally. That's that's difficult. There are, I think, uh, you do in general reporting. You do, and in this case, you certainly did. Although I can't see the justification for this story under any circumstances. But, but if you're going up to meet people and talk with them to gather colour at an event like that, you do. There are times in investigations when there is good reason for you to, at first instance, hide that fact. This wasn't one of them. Tonight, Donald Trump at war with the media. I'm not running against crooked Hillary. I'm running against the crooked media. That's what I'm running against. Trump blaming the press for his tumbling poll numbers, tweeting, if the disgusting and corrupt media covered me honestly and didn't put false meaning into the words I say, I would be beating Hillary by 20 percent. And he's ripping into the New York Times after it published this blistering report about turmoil in his campaign. The newspaper's going to hell. Maybe we'll start thinking about taking their press credentials away from them. Do we like the media? Do we hate the media? Okay, now I don't hate anybody. I love the media, they're wonderful. But, hey, I guess we wouldn't be here maybe if it wasn't for the media, so maybe we shouldn't be complaining. He was by far the most talked about Republican nominee in the primaries. All that talk led to his nomination, and still the Republican Party presidential nominee doesn't like the news media. Quote, I wouldn't kill them, but I do hate them. Some of them are such lying, disgusting people. They're among the most dishonest groups of people I've ever met. Last October, he said 50% of reporters were terrible. He's since upped that to 70 to 75%. The media is one of the least trusted institutions in America, and Trump plays this to his advantage. This week, Trump took aim at the New York Times for its coverage of the way he fired his campaign manager. Now, truthiness, as Stephen Colbert taught us, is something that feels like it should be a fact but isn't, so you believe that it is. Trump trumps the truthiness stakes. Nick, what do you do when real facts don't matter? How do you challenge Trump without being singled out by him as running a hit piece? Uh, if If you're working for something like the New York Times or the Washington Post and you challenge him, and and your story gets traction, you're going to get a response. And we know that. People like Maggie Habeman have been hit for this. So you accept it in the first place and you, you keep doing your job. How the, the broader political media reacts, I think, is what they're beginning to do now, which is consistency and, and good reporting. I think early in the piece, particularly during the nominations, people were so so fascinated by the Trump phenomenon that they simply regurgitated anything he said. CNN and Fox would play his speeches without any commentary from beginning to end, unlike any other candidate. That's changed. That changed when he was nominated. He's now, he's now being questioned. 
Uh, and, and I think that's the right thing. They just have to keep doing that. Our reporters have to keep doing that. They have to go back to their tools and do some good reporting. The New York Times' Jim Rottenberg wrote, if you view a Trump presidency as something that's potentially dangerous, then you're going to reflect that in your reporting. You would move closer than you've ever been to being oppositional. But the question that everyone's grappling with is, do normal standards apply? This has been really difficult for the American media because even more so than uh, Australian or perhaps British media, they uh, are a bit more old-fashioned and they do, uh, they're more wedded to their, their distance and objectivity than other cultures, media cultures, I think. And yet in this case, there's been what in America you might call the Edward R. Murrow moment when a lot of high-profile reporters and even publications decided that Trump was so dangerous that they had to respond, and they've started doing that. So you can see that in um, CNN's reporting. They're beginning to challenge him in the on-screen Chirons. You see it with uh, with Brian Stelter, their media reporter. He's challenging other reporters who are not challenging Trump. You see it with Vox. Um, Ezra Klein, I think, has come out and said he believes that Trump is dangerous and that needs to be reflected in reporting. At the same time, you can only do that, you can only get away with that if you're also doing the old-fashioned reporting, which is explaining why he's dangerous and what the contradictions and and the lies are and what he says. What do you think the Washington Post, Politico, the New York Times make of being called out by Trump? Do you think they'd care? I know the reporters do. I, I've been to a number of Trump rallies, and, and if you're a visitor like me, it's entertaining, it's sometimes overwhelming. But if that's your workplace day after day, if you're being shepherded into these arenas every day, more than once a day sometimes, and Trump is pointing at you and heckling you and the people around you are throwing things and hurling abuse, then for those people it really does matter. More broadly, I think for the institutions, no, they're, they're going to keep going. I, I don't think they're intimidated by Trump. So Trump has revoked press credentials for BuzzFeed, the Washington Post, Politico, and he's considering adding the New York Times to that blacklist. And here in Australia, actually, during our most recent federal election, independent candidate Tony Windsor was banned, banned News Corp journalists. Is it ever reasonable for a politician to ban... You have to put your personal preferences aside and whether you think uh, one outlet or another is, is biased or, or destructive or, or whatever that is, but in terms of a politician, an elected representative banning uh, a news organisation, I would probably lean no. Um, I think ev- I think you could really easily justify it based on your your worldview, um, and sometimes it would be tempting to do that. But uh, I think you'd damage something more important uh, and much broader than your sort of individual um, prospects by doing that. Fox News has been a longtime friend of the GOP, but there have been a few bumps along the road this election season. Nick, what's your take on Fox's relationship with Trump? This is a really interesting question, and what's going on inside Fox almost reflects what is going on inside the broader GOP. Fox is being torn apart by its coverage of Trump. Um, I don't know how much detail you want to go into, but I think Trump originally reflected the worldview of many Fox viewers, angry, whiter, older. In turn, they reflected uh, Fox's creator, Roger Ailes, but not necessarily Rupert Murdoch. Rupert Murdoch's an internationalist. He, he advocates for the free flow of capital and labour around the world. Uh, he's mates with Wall Street. Trump is the antithesis of all of that. So that was a problem at the outset. Ailes was one of the few characters, or was one of the few characters within the Fox empire who had licence to do as he wanted. And he decided to advocate on behalf of Trump. He decided to back Trump, reflecting Sean Hannity, reflecting Bill O'Reilly. 
But then Trump starts attacking the future of their station, one of its biggest stars, Megyn Kelly, in really ugly terms. And so then Isles is conflicted. He then has to start backing Kelly, so he arranges this rapprochement with Trump. And for a while, it looks like that's going to hold. Now the Murdochs have had to sack Isles because he's been accused of being a serial sexual harasser. Um, that reflects so many things, but in part it reflects the growing stature of the younger generation of Murdochs within the empire who probably don't, well, they don't, they don't share Trump's worldview. So I think at the moment you have an inherently conservative news organisation which is going to continue backing the Republican Party nominee, but I don't think it's unified in that position and I don't think his heart is in it as it has been for previous Republican candidates. Closer to home, Senator David Landhelm has filed a complaint with the Human Rights Commission over a Fairfax opinion article labelling him an angry white old man. But even though he says he isn't personally offended, he's raising the complaint to test the limits of Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act, a section he wants amended. As it stands, it's unlawful to offend, insult, humiliate or intimidate a person because of their race, colour or national or ethnic origin. George Orwell taught us that journalism is printing what someone else doesn't want printed. Everything else is public relations. Shannon, when Leonhelm and others like him who want to see Section 18C repealed use the argument preventing hurt feelings prevents genuine criticism, are they being reasonable? I think this is this reminds me of the time um, the Times Lyle Shelton from the Australian Christian Lobby has told me he's not a homophobe because he's not afraid of gays. Therefore, he's taking the term really literally. And I think this is what critics of um, Section 18C are doing and can do because it's law. They can tear it apart quite literally and say, well, you can't offend me because I'm a white person. But we all know for a fact that 18C was introduced to protect minorities and protect uh, people who were victims of hate speech and hate crimes and, um, you know, discriminatory language. So I think it's people picking apart the law because they can, literally, um, rather than sort of in this abstract way. And I think that's a really unfortunate thing to do because whether you agree with 18C or not, um, it's the fact that it was introduced in the first place to protect a group of people who didn't have those protections to begin with. Um, And it's really disappointing to see these group of people who are, you know, in, in positions of power, who, who could often get to speak in the media, not really look at the bigger picture of uh, why this law was introduced in the first place. You're listening to Fourth Estate. I'm Marcus Costello and I'm speaking with Nick O'Malley, Shannon Power and Alex McKinnon. About a dozen members of an anti-Muslim group known as the Party for Freedom dressed in mock Muslim outfits and stormed a Gosford Anglican church service being given by Father Rod Bauer, a crusader for asylum seekers and multiculturalism. All of this was filmed by the group and uploaded to their Facebook page where it sparked a few flames, but the story burst into flames when it was picked up by the mainstream media. The group's leader has since appeared on The Project, RN Breakfast with Fran Kelly and John Law's radio show. It's pretty unlikely this would have been a story in the days before social media. It's the media's responsibility to bear witness, but bearing witness nowadays often means looking out for what's getting traction on social media. Journos filing from their desk is faster and cheaper than heading out into the field to find stories. And working with pre-existing content that has social proof means you can warm it up and you'll probably get clicks. Alex, if user-generated content on social media is getting attention, does the fact that heaps of people are looking at it and talking about it 
make it inherently newsworthy? Um, from an academic point of view, it's arguable. From a functional sort of real-life point of view, yes. Uh, if everyone is reporting on something uh, and you're the only outlet not doing it, you just kind of get caught up in the, in the momentum of it, I guess. But then is the news story the fact that it's a news story rather than the public interest of what the news story is actually about? Sometimes. Um, a, a lot of stories are written um, about a backlash to something as opposed to the thing itself. Um, and the story is purely that people are paying attention or, or getting outraged or whatever it may be. Is that sometimes at the expense, though, of other stories that need to be told but don't get told? Yeah, um, stories like that are easy to write. They're quick. Um, they're sort of a guaranteed hit. Uh, and if you can do that instead of spending you know, a few days or a few weeks doing original research that might sink without a trace when it goes up, then why wouldn't you? The project invited a Party for Freedom rep onto the show to debate with Father Rod Browner. A showdown like that makes for good TV, but is it good journalism to give someone like that from Party for Freedom a platform? Shannon? People should be allowed to have a a platform to express their opinions. Um, I mean, we might not always agree with what people have to say, but I think it would be um, irresponsible to not off a bit, you know, Rod Bauer and the Party of Freedom guy on. So it's a tricky one. I prefer, like, we didn't give them any kind of a platform because I don't agree with what they have to say and what they stand for. Um, but if you, I guess, doing fair journalism, it's, you know, he says, she says, we have to give everyone a right of reply. But is it always a case where there are two evenly weighted sides that should be given a platform? Or is that sometimes in the interests of journalism that it makes for a better story if there are if there's an argument no absolutely not but i think in a case like this you really couldn't you can't really have one party represented and not the other i think media organizations still need to engage with what is making news um and publish it because if we just said that if we don't like a person's point of view then they can take to the power of social media to create their own news and that takes the power away and the attention away from media organizations and we're all struggling enough as it is so um no I wouldn't I wouldn't and it's a responsibility I think of of media outlets and journalists and editors to give the entire story to its viewers. I wonder though if this is a case of somebody gaming the fourth estate they know that if they put something up that is going to get a reaction, whatever that reaction may be, good, bad or ugly, that because it's getting attention, it's going to get picked up and it's going to get proliferated through the um, mainstream media, not just the social media sphere. I think that's true, but um, that doesn't mean you can ignore it, sadly. Um, Media struggles with this notion of false equivalency all the time. In this case, I tend to think this is a, a minor story, part of a, a larger, serious story, but a minor story, which we'll forget. The biggest story when, when you discuss this that I think of is climate change. Um, we've been, for years, going back and forth, giving two sides of the story as scientists tore their hair out, saying there are not two sides to this story. I heard the argument, which I'm sympathetic to, that if we were to give two sides to that story or balance it, re- reflect how, how scientists view, then we'd listen to climate scientists 98% of the time and we get deniers on 2% of the time. But yeah, we're being gamed and yeah, it's a bind and no, there's not a clean answer. But the other thing here is that images 
uh, what's attracting us. We cared about that story not just because they uh, invaded a church, but because they filmed it. The week before, though, we cared about uh, abuse within the Dondale Detention Centre for the first time because there are horrific images. People have been talking about that, that abuse for years, and I think those images are, I could be wrong, a decade old or something. But we cared when we saw the images, and we can't pretend that's, that's not the case. Talking about what people are thinking and how people are feeling, it's pretty standard now to embed tweets into an online article. They function kind of like Vox Pops might in a broadcast package. How accurate is that as a reflection, and what is the function that those tweets are supposed to play in an online article? Oh, they're not very accurate. Um, the only people on Twitter are journalists and politicians <laughs> and political junkies. Um, and like, they're people too. And comedians. They, they are people too. Uh, hashtag journalists are people too. Um, <laughs> but uh, I guess... On, on a really base level, it's a really good way to break up an article if you've just got a wall of text. Um, sometimes having a tweet in there is visually appealing. Other times it's a good way to make it look like a lot of people are agreeing with you um, when that might not necessarily be the case. If you just you know are disguising a rant as a, a reaction story, that's a really good way to do it. Um, it can be a reflection of broader sentiment sometimes. Um, a really curious thing is that not many people are on Twitter, but uh, screen caps of Twitter go viral on Facebook and, and in other places all the time. Um, and in that sense, they can have a really broad uh, representative reach. Yeah. It's interesting. So you, you take like a screen grab from over in this social media world and you put it in that one and it gets traction and then you can take it from this one and put it in that one and suddenly it's like a snowball effect. It's, it's writing, the story's writing itself along the way. Pretty much. And it's a really good way for people to interact with Twitter without ever having to get Twitter, which they should never do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's it from us on Fourth Thursday tonight. Thank you very much to my guests, Nick O'Malley, Shannon Power and Alex McKinnon. You can find the show wherever you find your podcasts and you can catch us again at the same time next week. My name is Marcus Costello. 